Amen. Well, here we've always said that we don't just have a church vision. I mean, we have a church vision. Yeah, we want to have community groups, this type of preaching, that type of kids ministry. But we never have said we primarily want to have a church vision. We said we want to have a city vision that we came to Winston-Salem because we love the city of Winston. We love the people of Winston. And we came here to serve, to bless, to pray for, to reach our city. Our city's in a unique season and moment, right? There's a renewal. There's a revitalization of our city. And here's what we knew. When we were going to come to Winston, if we were going to saturate the city with the gospel, we are gonna to have to partner with all expressions of the body of Christ. Yes, that means other churches, of course, we collaborate and cooperate with other churches, but also other great gospel-centered nonprofits like Healing Ministries. Now, when you see that video, I mean, it's like Greg Jones, I, I'm like, that's how I feel. I'm like, I salute you. You went back into the darkest areas to bring light. I love that what he calls his ministry is Healing Ministries because he has the theology, and I hope you do as well, of healing. There's brokenness, so people need healing. There's spiritual slavery, so people need freedom. There's lack of hope, and people need hope, and Greg is bringing that, right? You're watching, you're like, basketball with gang members? Now, here's a question you may ask. Well, how does he get all those people in East Winston to that basketball game or to the where he's teaching the gospel or where they're worshiping together? Well, guess what? Most people don't have transportation there, so he's got an old van that doesn't work very well, that doesn't have enough seats, that he tries to go around and pick everyone up with. And we just decided as a church staff, that's not okay. So we're gonna buy him a 15 passenger van. Yes, listen. Jesus needed a boat, Greg needs a van, okay? And Jesus slept in that boat, he ministered in that boat, he taught from that boat. Uh, he fished in that boat. And so we just think this is gonna be an unbelievable resource. Now, this is coming out of our Hold the Rope initiative. If you're new with us, we do this every year. It's our way to help local, national, global ministries go further, faster. We're asking for 100% participation. So when you give to the Hold the Rope initiative, you're helping to buy Greg and Healing Ministries a 15-passenger van so he can do more effective and efficient ministry. Now, let me also remind you, that this is why we are headed downtown with our new location. This is why we're making what we call a geographical and generational move. We got, God opened it up. It's an amazing story I've told you before. 13 acres in downtown. And, uh, and it's right where, it's hard to explain. It's right where it's under-resourced and up and coming. It's where the urban poor are and the urban trendy are. It's where people are moving to. Uh, it's, it's where the medical school is right down the street. It's also where apartments are going in. It's also where nonprofits have put their headquarters because there's needy areas around there to meet felt and forever needs. So we're really excited. I wanna show you a couple pictures updating on our property. Our hope in 2023, which is just next month, is to show you more pictures. So there, that's the foundation. The foundation of the building is being laid, okay? The foundation of, the, yes, the foundation of the church is Christ. The foundation of that building is cement. Do you see that? Okay, that's what's happening. And then we got the main structure walls going up. And let's show one more picture. We got another picture of that. There we go. And let me just try to show this to you. Here's where our worship center is gonna be. So we even wrote the word stage so you can see, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, this is going to be a place of worship and a place of witness for decades to come. We are moving as fast and as responsibly as we can. Our hope in 2023 is to be able to give you more of a timeline. What they've told us is once we fully get above ground, they have a better idea of giving us a real timeline. When, when they're below ground and they're find, finding things like terracotta sewers and all these other kind of things, it's slowing things down a little bit. But our hope in 2023 is to be giving you monthly updates. 
on where we're heading. But in the moment, let's pray. Let's pray for our city, particularly for Greg Jones and for this building. Lord, we thank you for Greg. I just thank you that he has such a clear and compelling calling. I pray you'd give each of us that. Give that us, for some of us, that might be within our career. For some of us, that might be within our family. For some of us, that might be within education or our neighborhood. Would you just give us a compelling vision that, like Greg, causes us to move toward people? And I thank you that he's doing holistic ministry, that, that what we are as humans is we are a soul in a body in a community, and we need to care for the soul, the body, and the community. I thank you for the comprehensive care of healing ministries, and we are excited to celebrate and support them in this new year. Lord, we pray for this building. This building is a home and a hub for ministry. It's, it's a place of witness and worship. It's a means to a greater end of deeper discipleship and wider mission. Would you help us to do that in Christ's name? Amen. So this last week, uh, I got a phone call from a good friend of mine, and uh, he was sharing that his dad died. His dad was just about to be 70 years old, and it was not necessarily a big surprise. They had seen his health declining for some time, but it was still a shock. And so I was able to go, and just a few days ago, I was at a funeral in Asheville. And I don't know how often you go to funerals. My guess is the older you get, the more funerals you go to. When you're very young, it's like great-grandma's funeral is the only one you can remember. And then maybe as you get a little older, you remember grandma and grandpa's funeral. And then one day you wake up, and this is a sad day, and this has happened to maybe many of you already. You wake up, and it's like, oh, this was dad's funeral. And then you get a little bit older, and you realize, this is my sister's funeral. This is my friend's funeral. And whenever you go to a funeral, they're all different, right? But they're all kind of the same. I won't spend all the time in all the ways that they're different. The ways that they're the same is there's always like just, as soon as you walk in, there's just a sense of sadness over the whole room. People are crying, people are hugging. Uh, There's a sense of shock, even if you know what's happening, because you never know what it's gonna quite be like when that person's gone. Because by the way, the biblical definition of death is separation, because what happens at death? Your soul is separated from your body. And what happens at death? The person who dies is separated from everybody who's still here. And you feel that separation, okay? And then the third thing that you see at a lot of funerals is just a sense of silence. No one knows what to say. I'm talking at good, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, Bible-saturated funerals. There's still a sense. I mean, maybe, maybe the guy who gets up and does a eulogy, he maybe knows a little bit what to say, but most people, you don't know what to say. Well, here's what we're going to look at. If you'll turn to Mark 15, today, Jesus has to face his own funeral. Uh, Jesus has to face his own death. In fact, what we're going to see in chapter 15, we're going to have to move pretty quickly. It's a, it's a big text. We're going to see Jesus face death and dying, and those aren't necessarily the same things. Uh, death, I mean, that happens at the end of life, but dying, well, that's a whole nother thing. And dying excruciating and humiliating way, that's another thing. They say that the two biggest fears of humanity are death and being publicly shamed. Now, you may have heard the two biggest fears are death and public speaking, but if you ever talk to somebody who's like really afraid of public speaking, they have nightmares about speaking in their underwear, right? You're like, what's that about? Well, when you, when you speak, this is something I actually know a little bit about. When you speak publicly, everything about you is on display and it's a little bit like vulnerable. It's like, well, this is how good looking I am, you know? This is how funny I am or I'm not. This is how smart I am or I'm not. This is, I, this is, I know how to dress or I don't know how to dress. I mean, it's all on display and it's overwhelming. And so people, their, their greatest fear is death. Their second greatest fear is to be in front of everyone and embarrass themselves or be put to shame. So what we see with Jesus today is he's going to die while being publicly shamed. Here's where we're going. Death kind of hangs over this whole chapter. It's gonna start with Pilate condemning him to death. We'll talk about Pilate. It's going to, talk, it's going to be about the, the crowds cheering him on to death. Crucify him, crucify him. It's going to be about the soldiers beating him basically to death. And then it's going to be about the people who believe in him because of his death. That's where we're headed. 
And, and here's what I want us to remember, that the death of Christ, if you kind of miss everything else, the death of Christ, we're supposed to see two things in this chapter. It was painful and it was purposeful, right? You don't want something that's painful that's not also purposeful. It was certainly painful. In fact, what's interesting, and I'll show you this, um, there's a lot less about the physical pain and a lot more about the emotional, mental, psychological, and spiritual pain. I mean, they'll just write, they scourged him. No adjectives, no explanation. They crucified him. They will spend a lot of time on how they humiliated him, on how they bullied him, on how they mocked him. And so we're gonna look at his death was painful, but it was purposeful. Here's what we mean. Jesus didn't just die as a martyr for a cause. That might be how the average modern person views Jesus. Jesus didn't just die as an example for us to follow on how to suffer well. That's more how the mainline liberal churches would look at this. Jesus died as a substitute and sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. That's the heart of Christianity. In fact, um, Karl Barth, who I don't normally quote, he's a Swiss theologian, genius, um, had good and bad things that he, that he said, but, but he said he believed the most important Greek word in the entire New Testament was uper. And you go, what does uper mean? Instead of. Uper means instead of or on behalf of or as we put on our shirts in baptism, in place of. So when you read this, you need to realize that Jesus is being your substitute, your sacrifice. He's doing this instead of you being having to do it and in place of you and on behalf of you. With that said, let's turn to Mark 15, and we're gonna look at verse one with his interaction with Pilate. And so, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So what's happening is, it's a long story, okay? You gotta kind of put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together to get all this. The Jews, he's moving from a Jewish court to a Roman court. He actually had three Jewish trials, if you put it all together. He's now gonna have three Roman trials. Uh, under the Jewish trial, the, the big kind of like accusation was, if you remember, blasphemy. They tried a bunch of other things, but blasphemy was the only thing that stuck. Now they move him to a Roman trial. Do the Romans care about blasphemy? No, they don't care at all. Uh, and so we're moving from a Jewish trial to a political trial, and the main accusation is going to be political revolt. He's saying he's the king of the Jews. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, I just want to point this out every time it comes up. The people who hated Jesus the most and handed him over were the chief priests. Now, why did they do that? Because Jesus confronted the religious spirit of the day and the religious spirit of the day is the same religious spirit of our day. It's the, it's the spirit that puts yourself at the center of your religion. And Jesus said, you're not to be at the center, I'm to be at the center. That's what drove them crazy. So they hand him over. And by the way, this is interesting also and kind of a sobering warning. Uh, the end of the gospels and the end of Acts, they end the same way. Lots of court cases. You know, you ever wonder like, why do Christians seem to care about who's a Supreme Court justice? It's like, because we have 2000 years of history of understanding how important religious liberty is. And most times when people stand before courts all over the world for what they believe in, it does not go well for them. So he's handed over to Pilate. Now who's Pilate? Pilate is, he's the fifth governor of Judea. Here's what you need to know about him. Not a Jew hated the Jews. Uh, we think, oh, wow, amazing, Pontius Pilate, he gets to be over, you know, Judea. Not a big deal to us because, well, we have the Bible and we understand how big of a place it was. Not a big deal back then. He married into a wealthy family. This is how he got the job. He upset the Jews. This is important to know. He upset the Jews twice already. He didn't like them. He upset them twice. Um, it gets back to Tiberius. This is all written down in history. It gets back to Tiberius Caesar, and Tiberius Caesar says, if you upset the Jews one more time, you're out. 
So you're going to see he both hates the Jews, disagrees with the Jews, but ultimately is going to do what the Jews want. Okay, I'll show you. Uh, let's look at verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. So basically Pilate, Pilate is trying to figure this out. Why do they hate you so much? Like, I don't get it. You don't seem to be the type of person who's building some massive revolt. Uh, you, you don't seem to be a threat or an offense. And so he's just asking him. Now look what happens, verse three. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Literally in the Greek, his mind was blown. Because what happens is, you know, if you're Pilate, you, you have people coming into your court all the time. And, and I'm, not, I'm sure that none of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket and had to go to court, okay? But if, if, if you did, you know what this is like. Uh, what, what happens when you go to court is, you know, there's two options when you're in court. I'm guilty or I'm not guilty. But you defend yourself no matter what, right? If, you, if you're not guilty, you're like, I got to defend myself because I'm not guilty and I, I'm not going to get in trouble for this. And if you did something wrong, you still try to defend yourself to some, oh, I went 15 over, but I wasn't paying attention and it was really busy and I've had a good record and could you like, right? It's just part of the human nature and human experiences to defend yourself. Jesus does not defend himself. Pilate's amazed. Let's keep going on. Verse six. All right, here it is. Now at the feast, he, that's Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Like it couldn't be a worse guy is what he's trying to say. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, which is to release a prisoner. So Pilate's basically thinking, great. Pilate, it's very obvious in all the accounts, Pilate doesn't want to kill Jesus, but he doesn't want to upset the Jews. And so he's trying to think, is there a third way? Can we like, okay, you scared him, like let's release him now. But they don't want that, watch this. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy, and it was, that the chief priests had delivered him up. But this is very key to understand the rest of the story. Look at verse 11. But the chief priests, which would have been a small group, of influential people, small, very vocal minority. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd. Do you know what the Greek word for crowd is? Twitter. <laughs> no. But it's very similar. Now, isn't it interesting? We live in a society right now where it is a few people. Now, I don't know how they did it right then, but it's a few people who can be very loud and they can influence the crowd. Let's look on what happens here. Okay. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. So here's what we have to understand. We have to understand that the natural condition of every person before they come to Christ is they're part of the crowd. And crowds are a very interesting thing. There's something called herd philosophy. There's something called the madness of crowds. There's crowd, um, there's a philosophy of crowds. There's what's called group think. There's mob mentality. They all talk about the same thing. And I read about it, a lot of it this week. And it's very interesting. It's the whole idea that we act differently when we view ourselves as part of a crowd and not an individual. You'll, you'll see things like, you know, extreme examples. Was you, you see the riots or something like that. And then they interview people afterwards. Like, I have no idea why I was so angry. Yeah, I would never jump on a car if I was by myself. I would never break a window if I was by myself. There's something about crowds that we get lost in them. There's an anonymity to crowds. There's a lack of responsibility in being a part of the crowd. And what we're gonna see here is the crowds, crowds change all the time, right? So if, you, if we went back just a few chapters, there was a crowd that was praising Jesus. Now, it's debated even if they knew what they were fully doing, if they all really worshiped Jesus then, if they really thought he was. Some people think this is the exact same crowd or at least part of this crowd is now doing this. So we see the crowd, we see Pilate, look what happens. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Now, this is interesting. 
Pilate, even though he's a really a terrible guy, is the only guy who sees Jesus as truly innocent in the story. And so here's what he does now. And they shouted all the more, here's the crowd, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, in all these stories, we get to see who do we want to be like, who should we not want to be like. You don't want to be like the crowd or like Pilate in the situation, right? The crowd is not thinking for itself about Jesus. I mean, how many people, it's just like, they just believe whatever the current culture. There's a group of celebrities that tell the crowd what to think about everything, right? Sometimes the chief priest is Fox News. Sometimes the chief priest is CNN. Sometimes the chief priest is, you know, some famous celebrity or some famous podcast, and they influence the crowd, and the crowd is no longer thinking for themselves in regards to, well, anything, but I'm particularly talking about what they think about Jesus. So you don't want to be like the crowd. You want to think for yourself. You don't want to be like Pilate. Here's Pilate's problem, and I think this is the temptation for us. Pilate does what is safe and popular instead of what is right. Let me encourage you to begin to do, no matter what it is in your life, like can you make small decisions in your life, in your marriage, with your family, in your business, to do what is right instead of what is safe and popular. In fact, I probably don't need both words, right? Whatever's popular is safe because well, that's why it's, it's safe because it is popular. And here's what people think all the time. People think when I am, when I have more status, when I am more safe, I will be more bold. I just want to tell you that that's not true. That's not what happens with people. I know Elon Musk is a controversial figure, but um, it's interesting as you study his life, people say, you know, they whatever you think about Twitter and all that sort of stuff, people critique him and say, oh yeah, I would do those things. I would be that bold. I would take on Tim Cook if I was wealthy. And it's like, no, you wouldn't. The only reason Elon Musk has been doing these bold things, convictional things, is go read about what he's done. That's all he's done his whole life. So don't believe the lie that you'll do what's right later, but right now you'll do what's safe and popular. So he does what's safe and popular. He hands over Jesus. Look here. So Pilate, verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Look, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now he had Jesus beat. And we get from another account that he actually brings him back and puts him in front of all the people and says a very famous phrase in scripture, behold the man. Now what most people think is happening here is, is Pilate wants to have him beat so that the people will see how beaten he is. And if there's any little residue of compassion in them, they'll be like, what are we doing to this guy? And they'll let him go. Now that's not what happens. In fact, what, what, there was, back then there were three types of scourging, right? There was, there was like low level scourging. We hit you a few times for a minor offense and you better not do that again. And then there was kind of medium level scourging, which is you did something pretty bad and we're gonna make sure that you have marks on your back forever, but you're gonna be fine. And then there was the third level of scourging, which is what Jesus gets, which he is completely beaten. You, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, organs exposed, muscle exposed, um, blood everywhere. Um, mo often somebody would die. They only scourged people at this level that were headed for crucifixion. And in some ways it may have been a grace because then they don't even make it to the cross in many cases. Now, here's a thought that I had this week and I want to talk to you guys about just for a little bit. So why did Jesus have to be wounded for us? Like, why doesn't he, if we have a theology that Jesus has to get to the cross, like, let, let's get him there as quick as possible and let him die on the cross. We'll get there in a few minutes. Let him die in our place for our sins as our substitute, bear the wrath of God, and let's get out of here. Why does he need to be beat? Why does he need to be cut? Why does he need to be whipped? Because by the way, the Bible says by his stripes, we are healed. Well, I always think about, I think about these verses and then I think about, is there anything going on in culture that this speaks to? 
I thought about self-harm. There's a rise in this generation with self-harm, this coming generation. I don't fully understand it. I, I couldn't believe the stat I read this week, which said 13 to 16-year-old girls, one in four will practice cutting at some point. I thought, really? And this has happened in our church every, I mean, not often, but there's been a few times over the last six years, a very confused and distraught mom and dad call one of our pastors and says, I don't really understand it, but our daughter is cutting herself. Now, self-harm can go to the extreme of, well, the ultimate self-harm is suicide. But people say, well, well why, would, why would, let's just talk about cutting, because I guess this is a, well, it's a peer contagion as well. It's one of those things that, things spread very quickly among adolescent girls, so it spreads. Like anorexia and other things have in the past. But there's, there's a couple reasons people cut themselves. One reason people cut themselves is they cut themselves because, well, to be honest with you, this is a small portion, but they're narcissistic, and it's a way to get attention. You know, and so they, well, no one's looking at me, but if I cut myself, then maybe someone will look at me. That's a small reason people cut themselves. From everything I read this week, the main reason people cut themselves is because they feel so guilty. They feel so ugly. They feel like they've done, we've all had a version of this, not cutting ourselves. We've, you've all had a version of maybe trying to punish yourself. Well, because I did this, I'm not doing, you know, I, I, I'm not spending any money anymore on any, you, we've all had our own version of trying to punish ourselves. Well, here's, I think, the hope of the gospel. And let me say, if there's anyone in here, that's, that's struggling with cutting. That what we understand is actually you don't need to beat yourself up because Christ was beaten for you. This is the hope. You don't need to wound yourself because Christ was wounded for you. You don't need to cut yourself because Christ was cut. And, and, and there's, 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 there seems to be, they say with people who cut, there's some kind of relief that comes from seeing the blood. Well, this is why it's like, man, you need a theology of the blood. There is no salvation in, in your own blood. There's only salvation in what Christ has done for us. And so what we can tell, with Christians have a unique message. You're actually worse than you thought. <laughs> you know, it's, it's even, it's way worse than you think. You're in a way worse situation than you think, but the solution is not to cut yourself. The solution is to look how Christ was wounded for you, and by his stripes, you are healed. So he scourges them, and then look, here comes the humiliation. Look at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, this is verse 16, and they called together the battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Now, they put the, cr the crown of thorns is a picture and symbol of the curse that God said Adam was going to bear, humanity was going to bear. Remember that? The first thing after he sins, and he says, cursed is the ground, it will bear thorns and thistles. Christ is symbolically wearing the curse for us. That's what's happening here. Look here, though. And they began, verse 18, to salute him, hail king of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, right? I mean, that's the absolute, even today, that's kind of the picture of the, probably the worst thing you could do to somebody for their self-image and for your disgust toward them would be to spit on them. And, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Now, this is interesting. Pilate doesn't tell them to bully and mock and scorn um, and practice false worship and do all this. And they do this. In fact, I want to show you a picture. Here's a picture. This is a 400-year-old painting of the mocking of Christ. It's kind of an image that's haunted me this week as I've looked at it. You can see, I mean, that's what it was, you know, it was at night. So there's the, that's why they had the fire. 
and they're looking at him and they're making, you can see they're smiling, they're completely making fun of him. You can take it down. What they, what they would do is they would play a game called hot hand. So in another, in another uh, part of the scriptures in, in the gospel, it'll say, prophesy to us, Christ. Here's what they would do. They would blindfold the prisoner and then five guys would stand around and they'd say, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna punch you in the face. Four of us are, one of us is not. So if you've ever been punched in the face, it hurts. And, and if you've ever been punched in the face and not known it was coming, it really hurts because you can't prepare for it. And so they basically said, here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna punch you in the face, four of the five of us. One of us is not. If you get the prophesied to us, if you get the right person, if you choose the person correctly who didn't punch you in the face, we won't punch you in the face again. But we're gonna keep doing it till you get the person right. So you can see the intelligent, you can see the types of psychological and emotional and mental suffering that Jesus is going through for you and for me. And you may say, God, why haven't, why are you not just, you know, you know what it's like if someone does something to your kid. You know, it's like you want to hurt and harm, <laughs> right? Those who hurt and harm your kids. I mean, that's the natural, you know, I mean, I'm not saying we do that. But I'm saying there's, there's a visceral effect of I wanted to stand up for my son. Well, God the Father is not because Christ has to go through this for us. I'll show you. So look here. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene. Okay, the first person to come out of the crowd. Simon, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry the cross. Why do, why, who do, why do we care who he's the father of? Because church history tells us these two guys came to Christ, Simon came to Christ, they started a church. What's going to lead somebody to Christ is coming out of the crowd, having a personal experience with Christ on the cross. Carrying the cross, right? So if we ever had a romantic, if we ever were reading Jesus' words and we had a romantic feeling about the cross, we read it and we thought, oh, this is so... We romanticize carrying the cross. Yes, I just got to carry my cross. You can't read the story of Simon of Cyrene and think it's romantic. Uh, the beam that they carried, they, you know, in, in movies, you see him carrying a whole cross. That's not what it was like. They would actually just carry the horizontal beam, which weighed 75 to 100 pounds. So after being scourged and up all night and humiliated and mocked, it was too much for Christ to carry it. So Simon comes alongside and carries. Verse 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, in, in the Latin word for Golgotha is Calvary, and that's how we got the word Calvary. Um, <clears throat> and they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. This is where he's crucified. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. That was a narcotic of, of the day. It was to numb and ease the pain. And he doesn't take it because he wants to be fully conscious of what's happening. And they crucified him. Look, this is just very straightforward. They crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour. Now, the way that they did the day back then was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. because they basically only worked during the sunlight. That's what they could do. So it was basically sunrise to sunset. So when you see third hour, think 9 a.m. When you hear sixth hour, think noon. And when you hear ninth hour, that's three o'clock. It says this, and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. In fact, if you put all the gospels together, it actually said Jesus of Nazareth, which was to be supposed to, this is Pilate's final insult of Christ and of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, because nothing good comes of Nazareth, so that's humiliating that he's from Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it was written in Hebrew, the religious language. It was written in Greek, the language of business and commerce. And it was written in Latin, the language of law. Every person, this is symbolically, Christ died for every person. Every person needs to know why he died. It's written on the inscription. Here's what happens next. And with him, two robbers, or in, sorry, and with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Remember when John and James said they wanted to be on his right and his left? 
They didn't have this in mind. And those who passed by, here's more mocking. It's just constant. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, it's interesting because in Luke's account, we're told toward, right before Christ dies, one of those who was crucified with him says, you know, basically, can I be forgiven? And remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He says, today you're gonna come with me in the kingdom, which means sometime in between Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, one of the robbers, the criminals, repents and believes in Christ. This is the first deathbed conversion. And what's encouraging about this is most people think, we don't know, we're trying to put a story together, right, as we put it together. Most people think it's when the robber heard one of the seven words that Christ spoke from the cross, most likely the word, Father, forgive them. That it changed, the experience of seeing Jesus forgive those who were crucifying him changed this criminal's heart. But what you have here is you just have more and more, I mean, I can't overemphasize it because it's everywhere, more mocking, more scorn, more shame, more humiliation, more derision, and what they're saying here is, come on down off the cross. And what Jesus, you know, didn't say to them, but basically, I can't save myself and save you. And what's holding me on this cross is actually ultimately not the nails. It's a love for people, and it's an obedience to God. Now, I'll show you what happens. Here, here's kind of the locus of it. And when, verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, by the way, that would be the brightest time of the day, 12 o'clock. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, by the way, there are at least four other sources outside the Bible that confirm this darkness. It was a unique darkness that happened for three hours. And why would there be darkness? Well, in the Bible, darkness means different things. Sometimes the Bible means by darkness, um, wicked deeds. So sometimes the Bible will say men love the darkness and they won't come into the light. What do they love? Sinful deeds. Other times the Bible will say men are in darkness. And then it'll say something like they're in darkness and they don't understand. So there's the darkness of rebellion and evil deeds and there's the darkness of ignorance. That's not what this is talking about. This is the darkness of judgment. This is the darkness of the frown of God. This is the darkness of displeasure. The best, like if you're a Jewish person reading this story, you're like, oh, I know what this is. I know the, the most famous darkness in the Old Testament is the ninth plague, where God covers the land with darkness right before the 10th plague. What is that? The killing of the firstborn. This is pointing us back. All the Bible is, you know, it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. So it's all connected here. And so what's happening with the darkness is God is about to, in three hours, because it's very specific from the, the uh, third or the whatever, the sixth hour to the or third hour to the sixth hour, sorry, sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. Now, here's what it's saying here, that, that this is God pouring out his wrath and his judgment on Jesus instead of us. This is, this is the hope of Christianity. And I don't fully understand exactly how it works. Here's what we know, that at the end of time, the Bible says, if you read Revelation 19, 20, and 21, and 22, it says that at the end of time, heaven comes to earth. There's a new heavens and a new earth and it's coming down, okay? There's, so at the very end of time, heaven comes to earth, but at the cross, hell came to earth. That what we believe, 
is that somehow God poured out an eternal and infinite amount of hell on Jesus for three hours. And I guess Jesus could handle it because of the infinite internal nature of who he is, but all of the intensity and the anger and the displeasure and the disappointment and the wrath of God falls on Christ and he absorbs our punishment. This is our great hope. Look what happens. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloia, Eloia, lama sabachthana, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time that Jesus talks to the Father and says, my God. He usually uses much more intimate terms, Father, Abba. He uses a term twice, and every time Jesus uses a term twice, my God, my God, it's a term of endearment, Martha, Martha, or Simon, Simon. It's a term of endearment, and it's, a, it's an expression of the feeling of loss, that God has been separated from him, God the Father, so that we could be reunited to God the Father. And the longer you love somebody, right? You see this with like a, a marriage. It's a, say a great marriage, they've married for 50 years, and then one spouse loses the other spouse. It's so hard because for so long they had a loving meaningful, deep relationship. Well, imagine this from eternity past. This is the first time there's any type of separation. And this is what Christ does for us. He's willing to go through this, and so is God the Father for us. So look what happens here. And some of the bystanders hearing it, they didn't understand the original language. Behold, he's calling Elijah because he said Eloi. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, and this is not an act of grace. This is an act of Drink some more so you'll stay awake some more so you'll see that Elijah doesn't come. It's another insult. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And we know from another account that the loud cry was, it is finished. Which is a great and hopeful word, right? It's, it's not, it is mostly done. It is for the most part done, but you still need to do something. This is, it is done. I have, I have been waiting for this. And by the way, this is the very end of, and it's, now it's over. This is the end of Jesus's humiliation. So Christ had to go through humiliation, the Bible teaches, to exaltation. The beginning of his humiliation was being born, taking on humanity, taking on human flesh. The, he dealt with multiple humiliations through his life, being misunderstood and mistreated by family and friends and religious leaders. Then he goes through the great humiliation that we just read. And then from this point on, it's all, I'll show you this, it's all the exaltation of Christ. The first thing that happens, the most important thing that happens is in verse 38. This is the most important verse theologically and practically in this chapter. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, that you, you may go, it's just a throwaway verse. No, no. This curtain was 10 inches thick, not a normal curtain. It was uh, 60 feet wide. It was 30 feet tall. Tradition tells us it took 300 men to hang this curtain. This is the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The holy place, you know, different people could go to from time to time. The most holy place was where God's manifest felt presence dwelt. So there was a massive curtain. What, what's, the, what's, the, uh, 
What's being communicated with a massive curtain that's 10 inches thick? Stay out. That's, that's the message. In fact, the high priest was allowed to go in one day. Just one guy gets to go in one day a year. And before he would go in, they would keep him up at night because he was afraid that he would sin in his dreams because they didn't understand dreams and they didn't want to sin in his dream. So he would pull an all-nighter before he go in. And then there's all these special instructions. He'd put blood on him, the blood of goats. And, and then they would tie um, a rope around his ankle. And they would stay in the holy place, and he would walk into the most holy place. And they did the rope so that if he did anything wrong and God killed him, they would just pull him out from underneath the curtain. We don't have anything this serious today. Um, we don't think of God or his presence. Today we live in a society, oh yeah, isn't, can't anybody just whatever and whenever, and isn't God just our buddy and our co-pilot? And, and so what happens is that the, the, the immediate time that Jesus breathes his last, the curtain is ripped. This is important. First of all, man couldn't rip that curtain. It's 10, 10 inches thick. But just so God could really communicate it, he rips it from top to bottom, saying, I'm the one doing this. And the message changes from stay out. This is important. This is the difference between the Old Testament. The message in the Old Testament was stay away. Don't touch the mountain. I, I get Moses will speak to me, not you guys. And the message in the New Testament is come, everybody, come. There's been a way. There, the sacrificial system is over. The priesthood is over. You don't have to go through anybody else. You go directly to God through Jesus Christ. And then look what happens here. <clears throat> and when the centurion, huh, somebody has to come out of, sometimes you come out of the crowd, sometimes you come out of the soldiers. Look what happens here. The centurion, centurion means he who is over 100 people. So he had, he had a big job in the military. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way that he breathed his last, the moment Jesus breathes his last, look what happens. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. We're supposed to see that what were all the soldiers doing? Mocking. What happens at, at the death of Christ? One soldier confesses him as Christ. It's the opposite of mocking. This guy would have been the wrong race, he would have been the wrong religion. He would have had the wrong job if we're looking from how the Jews would have viewed him. And he's the first convert to Christianity after Christ dies. Now, it's interesting. He's also the first human to recognize Jesus as the son of God in the gospel of Mark. 20 weeks ago, when we introduced this book, it says, Mark introduces it as the gospel of the son of God. And then God calls him the son of God at baptism. God, the father, calls him the son of God at transfiguration. The demons call him the son of God a couple times. This is the first time a human recognizes him as the son of God. But it gets more interesting. Look what happens. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salome. Look at this. This is very interesting. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and they ministered to him. They're the only humans in the Bible were told ministered to Jesus. Angels ministered to Jesus after his temptation. Everybody else Jesus ministers to, but these women uniquely ministered to him. Women are unbelievably important in the New Testament, especially. They are going to be the first, the last people at the cross. They are going to be the last people at the tomb before they have to go home for the Sabbath. They are going to be the first people at the tomb on the resurrection. They are going to be the first evangelist. Now, this is really interesting because women had no status back then and couldn't witness in court. And so why would you put women in the story? Because they were there. Because it really happened. So here's what happens here. They ministered to him, and there were 
also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, this is really interesting. Verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, who you've probably not thought a lot about before. Let's look at him together. A respected member of the council. So first a high-level Greek, a soldier, now a high-level Jew. This is what's happening. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four gospels. And he is unbelievably important because we tend to think today in our American mindset that if somebody dies, you honor the body. doesn't matter who they were doesn't matter how they died. doesn't matter how they lived. Um, and if somebody dies overseas fighting a war, we go, rightly so, we go at great lengths, get their body back here. We just have an honor. It's actually a very Judeo-Christian idea. We honor the body. Well, back then they didn't have that. I mean, the Romans didn't care. In fact, what they would often do is they would leave the body on the cross. Uh, it's a warning. Hey, I mean, for weeks. Because they had lots of crosses and they were killing, crucifying people all over the place. So it's just like a warning, like, if you walk, if you come into the city of Rome, this is what happens if you rebel. So without Joseph, you could have potentially had the body stay on the cross. But if they would have taken it off the cross, they don't give criminals a burial. They throw criminal bodies in Gehenna. Well, that's what Jesus uses as the picture of hell. It's a constantly on fire trash heap. And that's what they would just do. They didn't care. They just, you're a criminal. You've gone against Rome and, you know, there you go. So think about this. Without Joseph of Arimathea, we have no proof of a resurrection. Now, by the way, God's coordinating all of this, right? God works two ways, by miracle and by providence. <laughs> and he's working providentially through these people to have this happen. Now, here's what we're told about Joseph of Arimathea in John's gospel. He was a secret disciple. It said he was a secret disciple, and then in this gospel it says he finally took courage and went public. One of the most critical moments in the life and ministry of Christ and in church history is when basically a wealthy guy with status decides to stop being a secret Christian. I mean, I don't know how it works for you guys. I mean, some of you, you know you're a Christian. Jesus knows you're a Christian. Your wife thinks you might be a Christian. <laughs> She's not sure some days. And, and what would it look like? I mean, you just think about it. This is the power, right? Think about it. He, he could do what other people couldn't do, but he had to decide to step out, step up, speak out. Not, no one, I mean, to have your own tomb, to have, most people think this is one of his extra tombs, you have a lot of money. To be able to go directly to Pilate and ask for it, you have a lot of status. I want to encourage all of us, to whatever extent we have, to begin to leverage our affluence and our influence for Christ and his kingdom. This is what's happening. This is a key moment. And we actually see something very tender about Joseph. Look what it says. We may not notice it because of how we think about things, but look at verse 46. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Here's what's really interesting. Back then, men did not touch dead bodies. 
especially wealthy men. In fact, we're told in John's account that his good friend Nicodemus comes and helps, also a secret Christian who decides to come out. And the two of them together are able to do something that no one else was able to do. They're able to face death because they understood the death of Christ. They weren't avoiding death. Now look, Jesus Christ died. I told you it was painful and it was purposeful. We've seen the painful. Let me tell you, here's the purpose. The purpose of Jesus dying is so that people who are in the crowd will come out of the crowd and become the church. And I just want to, I don't know where each of you are, but I just want to encourage you to, if you are still a part of the crowd, you have not thought about Christ for yourself, I would say consider the centurion who left those who mocked Christ and confessed him as Christ. Consider Simon of Cyrene, who we don't know if he was in the crowd or not, but he was certainly around them. And he comes out and he has a personal experience with Christ and it changes him. Be like Joseph of Arimathea who comes out of hiding. And this, you know, Christianity is a small piece of the pie dimension and he makes a, he took courage and made a courageous move. I believe this is what our, our nation's looking for. It's looking for people who understand death and therefore can face death with courage. I don't know if you um, remember this, but of course you'll remember 9-11, but at, when 9-11 happened and the towers fell, they'd done something, they've probably done this before in history, but they hadn't done this in a long time. They, they landed all commercial flights in the United States. And not just for the day, of course, for that first day. In fact, for a long time, the only plane in the air was Air Force One. And George Bush was flying around but they landed every plane, and then for the next few days, they said no planes. And uh, they were doing a special service in D.C., so, and George Bush said, we've got to do this service because i got to go speak to the nation. And he said, but I don't feel like I'm ready to speak to the nation about this, and I need to bring someone up here to comfort me, and I need somebody that will speak to the nation. And so he said, we need to go get Billy Graham. Now, the problem is, like, Billy's, like, in his 80s. And the problem is they said no commercial flights. And so they had, to, they had to get the Pentagon's approval to fly a private plane to Black Mountain, North Carolina. And they said no, there was no other planes flying in the whole nation except one private plane bringing Billy Graham to DC because they needed somebody who could speak to the nation. And George Bush said, I needed someone that could comfort me and they went to the guy who understands what Christ has done. And what Billy Graham did was he spoke to the nation a word of hope and a word of resurrection and a word of renewal in the midst of death. I've heard it said that one of the greatest things you could do would be to be the strongest person at your dad's funeral. What would, it, what, would it, what would your life have to be like that if your dad died, you would be the person that other people would say, I can depend on you? When, when, when your life collapses and everything around you, you, you have a view of Christ. Now, my friend who I went and saw, he preached his dad's funeral. It was one of the most moving experiences of my life to, to watch a young man talk about the loss of his dad, but the hope that they had of resurrection and being reunited. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we would like to be our own version of Billy Graham. Of course, he's a giant, a giant. But we would like to understand Christ and the cross in such a way that we wouldn't fear our own death. Such a way that outside of just being useful to ourselves, that maybe we could be useful to other people, Lord. 
Lord, would you give us just a picture? Maybe I think as, as we're about to go into communion, I think maybe what some of us need to be like is not like Joseph or the centurion or, um, or Simon. We need to be like the women. And what the women did was they just stayed and they just thought about it. They just looked. And I pray that we would look at the cross and we would look above the cross, the inscription. And the inscription really says, Christ died for the world. It says, Jesus in my place. It says, on behalf of anyone who would repent and believe. Lord, would we, would we be a cross-centered, cross-shaped church and people? We pray this in your name. Amen.